when I was the age of uh, some of the children who came down the bottom here and as I grew up, I attended a church which was built not shaped like this. Uh, we had a wonderful wedding yesterday with uh, Hannah and Isaiah and uh, they had to pick a church big enough and one that Isaiah's had a lot to do with. It's a large auditorium. It used to be a gym. Um, and uh, together with Bob's floral uh, uh, growth and uh, someone's very artistic, creative way, they'd made this big aisle which just looked beautiful going down this big church. But when I grew up, the church building where I attended was shaped like a cross. It wasn't a box, wasn't a square, wasn't an auditorium. It was a cross. And as you walked into that church, it wasn't obvious straight away that it was cross-shaped, not from the inside unless you sort of walked your way through. But if you saw a picture of it from above, didn't have drones in those days, but if you were lucky, you could get a tour up the bell tower and to the top and you could actually look down on the church from above and you'd notice straight away that the church was built in the shape of a cross. The entrance you walked in was at the back, at the very foot of the cross, if you like. There was a long aisle, great for weddings. It was very popular for weddings, and Bron walked down that aisle 26 years ago. You walked past the rows of pews, hard wooden pews back in those days, lovely stained glass windows. And then as you approached the front, the very front in front of you was the table or the altar in the sanctuary, the head of the cross. But as you got to that point, you got this intersection where there'd be these two wings, the arms of the cross. Technical name is the transepts. That's where the organist sat and sometimes the choir and there were some other pews there facing this intersection part. But the whole church was cross-shaped. Architecturally, it's what we call it was cruciform, formed or shaped like the cross. The architects of that church and many others like it, you might have been in one in Europe, there's lots, there's a few here still. They got it right. The church is meant to be shaped like the cross. Cross-shaped, cruciform. The trouble is it's not the church building (laughs) that matters whether it's shaped like a cross or not. It's the church people. Us, the church, the people of God. That's what matters. We are actually meant to be cross-shaped, cruciform. I don't mean we're meant to walk around as if we're nailed to a cross, not quite like that. But I do mean, just as we've heard in our passage from Philippians this morning, we are to have the same mind, the same heart, the same love, the same joy as Christ. Our whole life, our whole attitude is to be shaped like Jesus the same humble servant attitude as Jesus, who we're told this morning in this great Christ hymn, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. The life and heart of the church, the people of God, are to be like that. Christ-like, cruciform, shaped by Christ, shaped like Christ. 
That's what Paul, that's the reason why Paul puts this wonderful Christ hymn here in chapter 2 of Philippians. Not that only each of us personally, our own lives, should be following Jesus and the example he set, but the whole church as the body of Christ, him as our head, the whole church united together are to be cruciform in every way, our love, our worship, our attitude, our service, our humility. We are to be transformed, we have been transformed, and are being conformed, shaped into the image of His Son. But we can't do this, can we? We cannot shape ourselves to be like Christ. We can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps as if by our own sheer determination we will mould ourselves to be like Christ. No, this cross-shaped life is a gift. It's actually given to us in Christ. Have a look at what Paul says. If you haven't got Philippians 2 open, that's where we are this morning. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Don't go out and get it. Don't work yourself up and eventually you'll build yourself up to be... No, have this mind among yourselves which is already yours in Christ. You've been given a new heart. Your spirit now dwells in you. You've been, you're a new creation. The moment you confess faith in Christ, it's there for you. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is not expecting the Philippians... He's not expecting something of them that they must find within themselves or something they don't already have and have to reach up to to achieve or attain. No, he's calling them to exercise what they already have, to be what they already are in Christ Jesus and therefore to follow his example. In 1 Corinthians, you might remember the verse where Paul says, When I was among you, I resolved to know nothing except him, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. And we often think of that as that's all that Paul preached, just the gospel of grace, Christ and him crucified. And that's the content of his gospel. And yet that's not just what Paul's saying there. Paul's saying, When I desired, I resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. It's not just the content of my preaching the content of the gospel, it's the whole character of Christ that I resolve to know. That is, in Paul himself, it's not just the content of his preaching, what he says, but how he says it, the manner of the preacher, the manner of our ministry, the whole life and shape of the church is to know nothing but him him crucified. The cross itself, the love of God, Manifest in Christ, in his body on the tree, is what moulds us and shapes us. Christ in us. What did we hear last week? To live is Christ. It's no longer I who live, Paul says in Galatians, but Christ who lives in me. So much so that when we don't live like that, when our lives are not shaped by Christ and when we're not following in his footsteps, when we're not taking our cue from Jesus and the spirit that he's given us, then we're living against the grain. That was once our nature to live like that, but no more. We've been given a new nature in Christ. We're a new creation. We no longer live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
He's been poured out and dwells within us. And I don't know about you, well, I probably do actually, when we don't live accordingly, we feel it, don't we? In our bones, in our hearts, in our consciences, in our relation, relationships. When we let other things shape us and mould us, we no longer fit the way that Christ made us to fit. Those things used to fit, but they no longer feel right. Did you have one of these when you were young? Did you? I did. I used to love playing with these things. But it's like trying to fit, if you're, not, if you're in Christ and then you try to fit like the world, it's like trying to put the square peg in a round hole. And they've made it so well with all these shapes, there's only one place that that fits. It's the square one. I actually just found this in the, sorry, Scally, I'll blame you because you know what's missing in this shape? There's squares and there's circles. There's all these other shapes and there is a cross one. But Scally's pinched it. There's no cross to fit in there. How sad is it if the church loses its cross-shaped life and ministry? Second kids talk for today. No. Talk for all the children of God is what we're about this morning. Paul is urging us here, the Philippians, and I'm urging us here to be cruciform in our life. Sin, selfishness, some of the things we'll look at in a minute, they're now square pegs trying to fit into a round hole. And Paul is urging us here not just to be saved by the cross of Christ, but to be shaped by it because we're saved by it. To consider Christ, he says, think of his love, think of his humility, think of the comfort, the encouragement, his obedience, his sacrificial love and service. And if we have known any encouragement from him, any comfort, any love, any joy, any participation, any bit, if we've been blessed in that, then make Paul's joy complete. Make my joy complete by having the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. To which you might ask the question, well, the same mind and heart as who or what? Is it just to have the same mind together, to have this unity amongst yourselves? Fair enough, back in chapter 1 he says, I want to see you and hear of you standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side. So he wants to see a unity in the church itself, that they're of one heart and mind together. It could be that he wants them to have the same mind as he's had. He's just talked to it about how he's faced life and death and suffering. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's his attitude. If I live, that's great because it means I get to serve Christ more and it's for your benefit, fruitful labour. Or could it be to have the same mind as Christ, which is where he takes us in verse 5. Have the same mind as Christ, which is yours, who, though in the form of God, and he describes the heart and mind of Christ. Or could it be that none of those things are actually mutually exclusive? To have the same mind of Christ, that's what Paul has, and that's what he's just shown and given an example of. So to have the same mind as Paul is to have the same mind as Christ, and that's what I want to see, not just in you individually, but you as a church together. Unity in Christ and in our heart and our love, our humble service is the obvious goal 
of Paul's exhortation here, a unity which has been given to the church by God in Christ through the Spirit, but a unity which is about to be threatened and tested. Opposition is coming their way. Paul says back in chapter 1, the end of last week, when he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, trouble and persecution is going to come your way. Verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You're going to be engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be persecution. You're going to have enemies. Don't be frightened by them, he says in verse 28. All of that is going to come and it's going to test you, it's going to taunt you and it's going to seek to tear you apart. And whatever happens, Paul wants them to stick together, to have the same mind, to be in full accord. That's what the so, or I think the reading we have was, if therefore, at the beginning of chapter 2, if you've got a pen, circle that. Beginning of chapter 2, I've got a so and I've got a big ring around it. It's a conjunction. It joins what's just come before with what comes after. So we've got this great Christ hymn, which we're only going to spend a little bit of time of really, but it's really what all our time is about. But I don't want to expound that. John did that actually a couple of months ago. You can go back and look at his message in our Glorious Humanity series. But the reason Paul has put this here is because of what's about to be tested. The opposition, the persecution, their unity in Christ. So if you have any encouragement in Christ, any comfort... Have this mind among yourselves. How are they going to have it? Well, look to Christ. See what he does. See what he has done for you. See what you have in him already. And go on in that. That is actually how you will be kept, how you'll be sustained through this trial to come. By staying together in him. The minute you go out and try to be yourself, do something for yourself in the midst of that, You'll lose your strength and so will the whole church. Comes to What comes to my mind is the illustration of Roman soldiers. If you've seen movies like Gladiator or something like that, if it might be too gruesome for some. But when they fight, if they join all their shields together, they've got an impenetrable wall. It doesn't matter what comes at them, they stay together. But the minute someone gets a little bit keen and says, right, I'm going to go and do this, it actually, they on their own, and it leaves a gap in that protection. And so it makes the whole army vulnerable to the opposition, to the enemy. The worst thing community can do, the worst thing a church can do when trouble comes their way is to leave people on their own or to go out and try to fight it on your own. Or maybe worse still, be so distracted and fearful amongst ourselves that we start to bicker and fight from within. When that happens, the enemy's just got to sit back and wait, doesn't he? Just watch us fall apart from the inside out. Think about how you respond yourself when troubles come your way and life's a bit hard-pressed and difficult. Sometimes it just takes a long, hard day at work or a tough one at home with the kids or a little bit sick, you lose your call, want to kick the proverbial cat, be cold with one another, run and hide. What about then when it's incessant, not just a day or two, but day after day, 
every task and uphill battle, feeling like you're getting pummeled from every angle, every direction. Every relationship feels like it's just crunching the gears. How do you respond? And that's just one of us in a family or a home. What about it's the whole church experiencing that? Not just a few hard days or battling illness, but persecution, opposition, threats to life daily. Your leaders getting taken away. Husbands and fathers being arrested and homes being destroyed. That's what the church faces, even now in some places. Not just in Paul's day. Paul knows how important it is that the church remain united in Christ. In their faith, in their love for God and their love for one another. Because it's not just that people get a little bit antsy, is it, when things don't go our way and we start to turn inwards and attack one another. We actually lose our strength altogether. We actually, all that we have in Christ, that unity, that same mind which is ours in him, starts to dissolve. And Paul says, don't let that happen. Don't do that. Do nothing, he says. Nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, pride. Paul recognised that their greatest enemy wasn't just the opposition coming, it was their own hearts. And maybe there was little glimpses of that poking up in the Philippian church. But Paul recognised just how important it was to put aside pride and selfish ambition. Two of the, they were the greatest threats for their unity. Because when it's all about the self, all about me and not you, or all about you and not me, it's not about us then, is it? And so any desire or intention to stand apart, to make a name for oneself, creates a gap in that protective shield and opens us up, makes us vulnerable to the attacks of the evil one, to divide and conquer. Humility cannot coexist with pride and conceit, can it? Unity cannot exist in a community where there are factions, where there's selfish ambition. And that could have, rather than looking at the, uh, what was it, the hypostatic union with the kids this morning, he could have looked at kenosis theory of verse 7, where Christ emptied himself. And there's been a lot of ink spilled about that by scholars and theologians. What does it mean that Christ, what did he empty himself of? I'm not going to go into that, but just think, what do we like to do? We had a wedding last night, some of us were there, and lots of food, and what do you like to do? Well, you like to fill up your plate, don't you? And if there's not much, you try to... We actually like to fill ourselves up, don't we? That's how we're going to get by, that's how we're going to survive, make sure we're full. That's the exact opposite of what Christ does. He empties himself. He gives not just what's there for everyone, he gives of himself to everyone. That's where life is. That's where surviving is. That's where thriving is. That's where love is. Paul says, don't do it. Nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, in humility... 
count others more significant than yourselves. Instead of striving to put yourself on the pile or pile up your plate, get underneath someone who's fallen and lift them up. Feed them instead. Instead of preserving your own life, consider the life of others more important than yourselves. Instead of practising good self-care, which is all the rage when I was at Bible College, a number of seminars and sermons we had on self-care, and there was a place for it in one sense because a lot of pastors were burning out. Jesus took time out to be on his own, didn't he? Do you know what he did when he did that, though? He went to be with his father and pray. And even then he got interrupted by about 5,000 people who wanted to be fed the word and food and they didn't bring anything with them. Sorry, my day off. Need my self-care. No, he has compassion on them. He teaches them all day. Tells his disciples to get some food for them. Teaches them what it is to love, to be cruciform with the little that they've got and how God blesses that. So again, the preacher's confronted with his own word. How quickly do I go and have time on my own to pray rather than to fill up my tank and go have some time for myself? How many, how quickly do any of us do that? Now we're to love and care for one another, not by looking out for ourselves, our own interests, but the interests of others. And again, there's plenty of ink spilt here on verse, where is it? Verse 4, let each of you, let all of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now the thing is, if you've got, still got that pen in your hand that you circled the first word, put a cross through the word only in verse 4. It's not there. The reason it's been put there is an interpretive addition because of the but also, because that is there. <laughs> Although some texts take out the also, but it is actually there in the, the best versions. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. But you can see why we add the only. But it's not there. Which in light of what's coming up in the way that Christ loved and served and gave himself up, you might think, well, how can you even look to your own interests if that's what you're doing? Gave up his life for the sake of others. Surely you've got to look just out. Well, then we're adding our own only to the text, aren't we? <laughs> if we don't look to our own interests at all, because that's what Christ did. But I wonder if it's better to understand this perhaps in this way. In light of verse 3, in humility, having no selfish ambition, we're not to look selfishly at our or to our own interests. But in love, we're to count others more significant than ourselves. We're to look to their interests, not for our best interests, but for theirs. That might still sound confusing, because where do my interests then lie? Am I to look at them at all or not? Well, Jesus told us the greatest commandment was to love God and then love our neighbour as we love ourselves. Interesting. Not love your neighbour, not love yourself. So what you want to do for yourself and look out for your own interests, apply that to the other people. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church, yes, 
as you love your as you nourish your own body. Love like that. That's the way Christ loves. That's cruciform love. Not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Paul's encouragement, his exhortation here, is not that the Philippians should sacrifice themselves one by one, taking the bullet, so to speak, or the sword or the spear, for their brother or sister, for the sake of the rest, until there's only one left. That may well happen. It may well mean dying for Christ, but I think what he's saying here is stick together in this love. When one of you is down, pick him up. Share what you have. He prays in verse 6, doesn't he, back in chapter 1, that their love would abound more and more. In verse 27, he wants to hear that they're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. And here he's saying, my joy will be complete only when I hear that you have this same mind and you're a full accord together. Later he even implores two women in the church who are having a bit of a bicker, significant one. Agree in the Lord, work it out. Don't let this little trouble cause a big wedge to be driven in the church and he encourages the rest of the church to help them work that out in the Lord. Paul wants this church to remain united in Christ and to love God and one another. He knows trouble is coming their way. It's going to be tested to the utmost. He knows any selfish pride and ambition within the church is actually going to erode the unity they have. It's got no place in the family of God at any time especially when there's persecution and trouble on the doorstep. He's already seen the way they share together their love, but he wants it to abound more. He wants to see that fruit keep on going. He's rejoiced in the fruit of the gospel and the grace in their lives, but he just wants it to keep on flowing, to abound. What is it we often ask for when suffering or opposition comes our way? So often we ask for it to be taken away, don't we? I don't think that's necessarily wrong. You read the Psalms, there's lots of prayers. that Get rid of my enemies, cast them off. But what Paul says here is, doesn't pray that the enemies would stop. He actually says, no, Lord, grow them in love and unity. And you, the church, keep in that unity, maintain that unity. I was chatting with someone this uh, past few weeks about corporate boards and the roles of a corporate board. And he was saying you in the boardroom, you want good, robust discussion and debate. If you've got different opinions, you fight it out, you work it out together, you're free, you've got to be free to share your thoughts and work that out in the boardroom, argue it out, sort out your differences. But the minute you step out that door and you're in the public face, you make sure you stand by side by side, you're all singing off the same pew ship. Now in the church, the fight's been fought. Not in the boardroom, but on the cross. That's where our unity has been won. And so when we go have a board meeting, we don't have a board here, we still have elders and deacons. It's great. There should be unity already before we walk out the door. It's not a front that we put on for the public face. It's actually something we rejoice in and live in and work out of. We're going to hear that next week. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. We've been given this mind in Christ. 
So when there are differences, work it out within that mindset, within the unity you've got. Not as a threat to that unity, but because of the unity you have, work out your differences. Because if you let the enemy fracture that unity, it won't take long. The wedge is just driven in. It'll dissolve in an instant. Instead, Paul says back in chapter 1, end of last week, be together, one heart, one mind, one spirit, striving side by side. Don't be afraid because your unity in that and your lack of fear because you're together in Christ is a clear sign to your opposition of their destruction and of your salvation. The unity of the church is almost it's evangelistic to our enemies. It tells the world of the victory of Christ. A victory that's been won. How? Strength, might, power, determination. No, a victory and a unity that's been won by the one who emptied himself, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so he saved us in that way and he's shaping us in the same way. That's where the life and unity of the church is found, in Christ, the one who suffered and died and served, not the one who had selfish ambition and pride. No, God humbles those who exalt themselves. And so Paul shares this wonderful Christ hymn, instructs and encourages them, not just with the ultimate example of Christ to follow and encouragement, but as the very source of their own humility and their unity, Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. I'll read it again. Who, even though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But it doesn't end there, does it? It goes on. Because that's not the end of the story. Because that's not where humble obedience and service find their resting place. Far from it. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, having this unity and maintaining this unity, this same mind and same love is not just about preservation of the church. Christ's got that well and truly in his hands, hasn't he? But what Paul is encouraging them and telling them here is that having this unity and maintaining that together in Christ, having this same mind, doesn't just look after yourself when times of trial come. It takes you into the very goal that Christ has set before you, to glory. Resurrection. Glory. This is not just about preservation of the church. This is about the glory of the church, the glory of Christ. To live in Christ to die is gain. It struck me this week just how backward 
that sounds, especially to the world, but even in the church. Surely it's good to live, that would be gain, but to die, that's to be with Christ, isn't it? That's not what Paul says. No, to to live is Christ and to die is gain. You can ponder that for a while, but there's resurrection, there's glory to look forward to. That's where the cruciform life leads. Resurrection glory. I was recently recommended this book, running out of time, but um, and any ordinary day, by Lee Sales, the journalist, you might have heard her, seen her on telly. It's a book of interviews and what she herself has learned through her own suffering and through other terrible suffering and trauma. In the back of it, it says, when she expected broken lives, she instead found strength and hope and even humour. And at one time she chased down a Jesuit priest who helped a woman whose family and close ones had gone through a terrible time, lost her partner and his daughter quite brutally at the hands of uh, that man's own son who suffered paranoid schizophrenia. And Father Steve, this Jesuit priest, is very much a pastor, a shepherd who serves in the disadvantaged and the homeless at King's Cross in Sydney. And she asked him, in your job... Are you all the time listening and observing and trying to work out what to do? Or are you talking to God in your head? What's the process? And after a long pause, Father Steve responds with something like this. He says, this is not my job. This is who I am. I was ordained for this, he says. I'm not working. I'm not acting. I am the shepherd. Now, Christ is the shepherd. But pastors are shepherds, that's what the word means, under shepherds, under Christ. Have a listen to what he goes on to say. He says, when I go into a situation, others know because of who I am, because I'm a priest, that God is with them. They're not abandoned in their suffering. Their suffering is their entrance into his suffering and resurrection. Wow. Their suffering is entrance into Christ's suffering and the resurrection. It's sacred, he says, suffering. Sacred meaning it has a holy role and purpose. We don't want it. We can't avoid it. But it's our entrance into the suffering of Christ and into his resurrection. Isn't that what Paul tells us in Romans 8? That one of the purposes of suffering, some of the good that God works in and through all things, is to conform us to the image of his Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many sisters and brothers from the dead. That we might be co-heirs with Christ in glory, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. In the Christ hymn that Paul has here in Philippians, Paul presents Jesus not only as our example, but as the pioneer, the one who has paved the way for us, suffered and died for us that we might have life, and also paved and shown the way to life, the life, the path to glory, actually. A path to glory that starts how? He humbled himself and became obedient to death, and he served, and he loved, and gave up his life. 
and therefore God exalted him. That's the path to glory. That's the cruciform life. It's the path of the cross. And we don't need Lee Sales or he don't even need to go out of Philippians to tell us that. Back in, or in chapter 3, we'll get to it in a minute. Paul says, I'm determined to know Christ and I want to know the power of the resurrection. Good thing to want to know, isn't it? I give up everything, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We're going to look at that more over Easter weekend. Our time's up. I had the passage from Revelation 2 read for us, maybe because we're doing Revelation on Wednesday nights, but also because this is a church there that are also, like Philippians, are going to be facing trial and tribulation. Jesus says there are going to be trials coming. Some of you are going to be sent to prison. Some of them might even die. But did you hear the promise? Jesus himself, the words of the first and the last, the one who has died and came to life. He knows what it's like to suffer and he knows where it ends. Resurrection, glory for all who come to him. Be faithful even unto death, he says, and I will give you the crown of life. That's where the cruciform life leads, the one where Christ has saved us and shaped us, even in our suffering for resurrection, glory. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. If our life and attitude and heart and mind are shaped like Christ's, will we miss out on some things? Yep, we will. Will it wear us out? Probably. Will it hurt? Will we suffer? Yep. Might even get us killed. But none of that's worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. That is the way to glory. The way of glory is the way of Christ. It's the way of his church. And so let me finish with these words. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Amen.